0: Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Epiphany in Lent, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, where we see God revealed in Jesus. As is common for Luke, what we see is the kingdom coming to all, but maybe most often to the unexpected, We'll see Jesus challenge his disciples, the rich young ruler and the proud religious leader, but commend a persistent widow, insist that the children come to him, and reveal that a blind beggar can see him for who he is even better than his own disciples. Finally, we will make our way with Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd around him as he enters Jerusalem on Holy Week long ago. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless.
1: Let's pray once again. Lord, this morning we're, we are in your presence, and we're grateful that you've spoken to us through your word these passages God, we're in awe of um, you and how you engage with so many in this gospel of Luke and how your desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life and how you speak uh, to each person with what they need. God, we pray that that would be true of us this morning, that wherever we are and the doubts that we have and the temptations that we have to put trust in the things of this world, whatever it is where we are, we pray that you'd speak to us and that we would um, put it all aside to follow you. Speak, Lord, we pray. We are listening. Amen. Um, y'all probably heard Phil has made his ruling. Um, this week, Punxsutawney Phil said that without a doubt he saw his shadow and you all, particularly being Pennsylvanians, know what that means. It's really just a basic algorithm, right? If then. If this, then that. If he sees his shadow, six more weeks of winter. And he's, he seems to have gotten it right so far, actually. It's incredibly cold in here. Um, not surprisingly, being in Pennsylvania and as far north as Phil lives, um, of the 137 years that Phil has been telling us the weather, working as this magic meteorologist, um, over 100 have been that he has seen his shadow. Um, he seems to know what he's doing, at least this year. It's a rather mundane kind of algorithm, though, right? It's just this basic if-then And uh, it makes a good movie, and it sort of, you know, makes us wonder if there's something to it when it drops to 11 degrees on a Saturday morning after Groundhog's Day. But of course, there's lots of other algorithms in the world that are not so mundane. Think about this um, story that made the headlines back in 2014. This is a totally normal Wednesday morning at Target, and you are the manager of this target and you hear one of your cashiers interacting with this man and clearly he's very agitated. And he starts saying, I wanna see the manager. And so you kind of just take this deep breath, okay. And you make your way over to this cashier and to this man. And before you can have any form, you know, greetings, hello, my name is Peter, I'm the manager here. And before you say anything like that, this man throws these coupons at you and you grab a couple of them and you look down at your hand and you see they're coupons for diapers and for a baby stroller and a car seat. And this man, he's furious because he says, these arrived at my house yesterday, addressed to my 17-year-old daughter. What are you trying to do, get her pregnant? And of course, you apologize because you're just a manager at a target, um, but you ask for his number, you tell him, you'll look into it, you'll get back to him, and he's like red in the face, angry, you know? But he kind of huffs off, because he knows that that's probably about as much as you can do at this point. So what happens is that you inform your higher-ups about what had happened, and you sit on this for a few days and you haven't heard anything, but you're still just kind of agitated by how angry this man was. And it seemed like it was at you and you have his number. And so you call him up and you, you think, you know, I'm just going to apologize again because I really don't, I mean, I, I'm sorry about this thing that happened to this man. And so he picks up and you notice automatically that his tone has changed. And he says, uh, I had a talk with my daughter and it turns out there's been some activities happening in my house that I didn't know about. And uh, she is due in August. And I owe you an apology. Um, target. If then. They know the algorithms, right? Someone starts Googling one thing and all of a sudden there's coupons for strollers showing up to your house. Um, or maybe think about this. Uh, You start looking on Amazon at a new grill for your back porch, and all of a sudden, barbecue guys and Home Depot and Lowe's are flooding your Instagram feed with the shiniest, prettiest grills you could ever imagine. How does that work? If then, right? The text we have for us this morning from the Gospel of Luke is a passage. This passage also appears for us in the Gospels of Matthew and of Mark. Um, and I think, I think one of the reasons why the Gospel writers, you know, you know probably that there's quite a few passages that appear in all the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's quite a, few, quite a bit of overlap, but this one appears in every single one of them. And I think partly because the authors know that the dynamics of this passage are often just the dynamics of our life. We tend to live in sort of an if then world, an if then life. If this, then, then this is gonna happen. What's the algorithm of life? That's sort of what's being asked here. I mean, that's what this guy wants to, wants to know how does he have eternal life? This is the question he asks, right? Then the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? but you need to see here that actually even in Jesus' response and in their conversation, they're blurring the lines, sort of like actually C.S. Lewis's quote there at the beginning in your meditation, the preface from The Great Divorce. He's blurring the lines a little bit about uh, between the life now and the life to come. And so what this man is saying is, how do I have life? What's the good life? How do I get it? What's the algorithm for life? What's the if this then eternal life or then the good life and let's consider what options we have okay um, the first option i want to say is well th- here's here's the question is the answer to have youth does that give you the good life is that what eternal life is is there sort of when you you know when you die are you going to just going to be like you know 25 when you know you hit your peak of physical well-being and mental well-being you know it's downhill from there right 25, it's pretty early. Um, Luke does not give us an indication of his age, but Matthew does actually. This man we're told is young. And um, Luke has just told us uh, that we have to become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven in the previous passage. And so maybe that's why he doesn't necessarily mention youth here, but Matthew mentions youth. And I think one of the questions that we have is, is youth the good life um, in 2015, there's a whole, there was a whole new class of drugs that was developed called Senolytics, and um, this is a quote "It says, the goal of this research is to discover, develop agents to delay, prevent, alleviate, or reverse age-related diseases. How many of you have bought those already? None, because they're still in testing stages, but you want to, don't you? Um, The fountain of youth, of course, is mentioned as far back as Herodotus and the elixir of life as far back as the epic of Gilgamesh, second millennium B.C. And we all know in our own day, there's a seeming infinite amount of ways that you can pursue youth, looking young, feeling young, staying young. I mean, how many serums promise no wrinkles? Any idea? I mean, there's got to be thousands, right? Um, how many diets promise you that if you just follow them, you will have a youthful spirit and a youthful body? So it's the algorithm for life, the good life, youth. Fit body, keen mind. There's a second option that we're presented with, and that's actually the one that begins this passage right here. And this second option is, is power. Is the algorithm for life, do you just need more power? You need more say? Um, I mean, the first thing we read about this guy is he's a ruler. And a ruler asked him. Somebody that rules, that has sway in the world. And we're getting a picture. We're like, nice. I mean, this guy's young. He's, he's, He's got some power in the world. I mean, is power the answer to the good life, to eternal life? The fact is, is that there is a lot of problems in the world because of an imbalance of power. The wrong people have power. Some people have no voice and no power. They live primarily as the oppressed. Is the power problem in the world the primary problem of the world? Like, if we could just get power dynamics right, then the world is going to be set. And we're going to have the good life. Is that the answer? How often do we think? That the good life comes about by getting the right people in power. Or if everybody just thought as I did, you know, if only we had the power. I like to think that sometimes. If anybody just saw the world as I thought, things would be probably right. Um, right? We think, oh, to be a ruler, even just of our own houses, where kids would do what they're told when they're told to do it. Where, where your spouse would listen to you when you're talking to them. So, I mean, is that part of the algorithm to life, right? Or the good life? Being a ruler, at least of a little tiny domain, and having power dynamics put in their places. There's a third option that we have in this passage. And this third option um, seems to, uh, at least here, it gets a lot of attention. And that has to do with money. Money. Young, ruler, rich, rich tall, dark, and handsome doesn't give us those details, but you're thinking, yeah, this guy's got the good life. Okay. Listen to these statistics. There is a one in 1,222,000 chance that you will die or be severely injured by lightning in your life. Don't be, in, don't be fearful of lightning. It's 1,222,000 chance. If if you went to the largest stadium in the world, which is in North Korea, it seats about 150,000 people. Um, and you were given a lottery ticket. You would have a chance of, of one in 150,000 people. I and mean, not, not a very high chance. Um, in order to win the Powerball, you'd have to multiply that stadium by 1,947. 1,947? That's your likelihood of winning the Powerball. Do you know how much money in Pennsylvania alone in 2021 was spent on the lottery? Any guesses? Five and a half billion dollars. Um... Um, but you know what, what if you didn't have to worry about your mortgage? Um, I mean, would you have the good life? What if your, your spouse had gone a different route in their career and just made a little bit more money? Would you have the good life? Is the algorithm for life money? If this, man, then, then I got it. Then I got it. how about about religion? Is the the answer just getting religion right? Okay. um, One of the things that we learned first in this passage is that this man is interested in Jesus, right? Uh, He comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And you're not really supposed to take that as though he's putting up some front. Um, what What we do know is that that wasn't a common phrase that you would You know, say to a rabbi, this was probably somebody who genuinely had heard about Jesus. And he thought, I kind of want to hear what this guy has to say. I'm interested in religious questions and the religious life. So he goes up to Jesus. And I mean, of course, Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But this also doesn't put this man off. He's in it and he wants to engage with this religious dialogue. And then when Jesus says, you know, the commandments, What's clear is that this man did know the commandments, right? I mean, his answer is, I've kept all these from my youth. He he knew the commandments and he knew how he was to keep them. And I think he said that rather straight faced. He wasn't trying to pull one over on Jesus. Um, Okay. You need to understand here that everyone around him um, didn't hear him say this and think, Who does this guy think he is? He actually thinks he's kept the commandments. No, because actually most of Judaism at the time is just like most of Christianity now. And sort of as religion has been throughout the world, which is to say that they took the law of God and they said, okay, you just do this and this and this. And if you do it in this way, you can actually say you followed it. You know, he had done his quiet times at least three times a week or something. Um, he hadn't taken God's name in vain. Maybe some other bad words, but not God's name in vain. He had tithed a tenth of all he had, his mints, his cumin, his dill, all of it. He'd been respectful to his parents. He had done all of these things to the extent that the community about him really probably would have looked at him and said, man, that's a good Christian young man right there. Commendable. So it's sort of like religion as sort of a, you know, you can follow these rules and you can see, okay, I I saw God's law and I respected it. Option five, which is sort of similar. um, Is the good life the moral life? The moral life, you know, just doing the right things at the right time for the right people, having a good conscience. Is the good life... Voting for the right people, getting behind the right causes, black lives matter or the fight against critical race theory in our schools. Right? I mean, he's able to say, Jesus, I, I didn't commit adultery. I didn't murder. I didn't steal. I didn't bear false witness. I honored my father and mother. And maybe we can say, I read the parenting books. I, bought, I brought my kids to the polling locations with me to teach them how to be good civic uh, people. Oh, I didn't write that down. That's probably a better word. Um, I posted about the right things on about the right social causes on the right social media streams. I fought against closed minded bigots. I fought against all this liberal. Brainwashing, whatever it is, you know? Is it morality? Just kind of getting everything right and doing it right all the time? Is that the algorithm for the good life? Just have the right morality and you'll have the good life. What do I have to do, Jesus? Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And no question, the big hang-up for this man right here, Jesus speaks to, and it has to do with his riches, his money, his pocketbook, his bank account. Um, And I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus himself, Jesus didn't uh, recite the commandments in their right order. Every good Jew would have known the order of the commandments. They said them in that order all the time. Jesus would have known what order they should have been put in, in the original. And he would have normally been saying them in that order. But he says, honor your father and mother at the end. Here's the thing. This man's wealth would have given him the opportunity to care for his aging parents. Why would he give it to the poor? It's his duty to honor his parents. His wealth would have given him opportunity to sponsor great, uh, civil uh, buildings in his community. His wealth would have given him the opportunity to get a new HVAC system for his synagogue so it won't be freezing in the wintertime. Um, and these reasons, of course, are part of why the disciples say, then who can enter the kingdom of heaven? Because a religiously devout person with a lot of wealth can frankly do a lot of good. And probably has done a lot of good. He's seeking after Jesus. And yet his wealth is hanging him up. They would have said, this man, men like these are exactly the kinds of people that we need. This is where life is, Jesus. And you shouldn't think that Jesus didn't know that there were real benefits to somebody who could be a benefactor to the poor in the world. Or to build buildings, do these kinds of things. Jesus knew those things. But more than this, Jesus knows that there's a great eternal harm in great riches. The real harm of riches is that you don't have to live like you're an infant, you don't have to live like you're in need, that you're dependent, that you don't have anything to bring to the table. Now, one thing you have to, have to understand, too, is one of the things that Jesus says here. It says, he says, how difficult it is, is it for those who have wealth? Now, we have to go through all these other ideas here that are going on with saying, is this where life is? Because the temptation when you read this whole passage is just to say, yeah, this is all just about wealthy people. If wealthy people would just get rid of their wealth. But Jesus, or sorry, people with riches, but this word wealthy actually has some, some related words that actually say, uh, mean things like this, give testimony about, where you can say, hey, look at what I did. Look at my possessions of a mental mind. Look at how smart I am, Jesus. And you can rest on that. You can rest on sort of all the things that you've accomplished in life, If you say, look, you can rest on all the, all the ways that you've sort of fought good causes in the world and say, look, and those things can actually be the hindrance for you entering the kingdom of God. What I want you to hear this morning is Jesus' words, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to he- enter the kingdom of God because wealth, wealth doesn't just have to do with dollar signs. You can be poor in money, and rich in intellectual life. You can, be, you can have a mind that you can stake your life on. It can be your life, what you find your worth in. You can be poor in money and still have order in your family, right? At least my kids obey me. And that is your identity and that's your life. You can be poor in money, but be beautiful in appearance and stake your life on your good looks. And as long as you do any of these things, it will be impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God. It'll be impossible. It'll be like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Some of you uh, may have heard that the eye of a needle, I heard this at least once when I was growing up. The eye of the needle was a door, a small door in a gate that made its way into Jerusalem. Um, And so it's really hard to get a big camel through there, but uh, maybe like a baby camel could make it through a small door. Um, There's no evidence for any door ever being called the eye of the needle in Jerusalem ever. Uh, There's another theory that maybe you've heard and that, um, and this is kind of an interesting thought that Jesus didn't mean, mean the word camel there. He meant the word rope because as you know, The difference between camel and rope in Greek is just one letter. Um, But of course, that actually does away with the entire point that Jesus is making. The camel is the largest animal in the ancient Near East. The eye of the needle, the smallest hole. And Jesus is saying, it is actually entirely impossible. If you come to God and say, look, I'm resting on on my intellect, on my good deeds, my morals, on my wealth, on my youth, on any of it, Jesus says there's no way you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. No way. Not a chance. As long as you're holding on to something, anything, here and now, something that you can have or something that you've done, something in yourself, you can never enter the kingdom of God. The only way to enter the kingdom of God is by grace. Only ever. Thankfully, Jesus says what's impossible with man is possible with God. And Jesus also says leaving whatever you need to leave is worth it. Even if it means leaving the wealth that you could provide, that you could give your parents a decent life. In their old age. He says it's still worth it. Verse 28. Peter said. See we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them truly I say to you. There's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. for The sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time. In the age to come eternal life. Some of you may need to stop working out. Some of you might need to relinquish what power you have to someone else. Some of you um, might need to give away a lot more money to the poor. Maybe all of your money to the poor. Some of you might need to leave your family relations. Some of you, I don't know who among you, but maybe some of you need to skip church for a week. Some of you need to stop dotting all of your I's and crossing all of your T's and quit the morality game. All of us need to know that it's by grace alone that we enter the kingdom and that giving it all up, everything up, is absolutely worth it. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of our service that because some of you are reading the book, The Great Divorce in the Stalkers Community Group. I started reading it again this week, and I had forgotten how much I love this book, though. Every part of it seems to have been um, sort of put on my memory. It seems so familiar. Um, for, some of, for those of you who don't know this book, it's an allegory, a uh, hell and heaven allegory. And there's this bus that takes people from this place of the shadows and of ghosts, uh, this hellish place to at least sort of the foothills of heaven where you can start to make the journey up into this solid place of heaven. And there's these heavenly beings that come um, and they were, they were known by the characters on the bus in, in the life here on earth, the life before this, this existence of this hellish place, and this heavenly place. They're known by these characters. And so they have these interactions. Um, and I, I want to just read to you a couple quick interactions. I wanted to read to you a whole chapter, and then I just thought, the, I can't have my whole whole sermon be from The Great Divorce. <clears throat> Let me read a little bit of this. It says, almost at once I was followed by what I have called the big man. He's one of the ghosts. He was on the bus with the, with the narrator. And to speak more accurately, the big ghost... He, in his turn, was followed by one of the bright people, the people who had come from heaven to encourage these people to to press on. Don't you know me, he shouted to the ghost, and I found it impossible not to turn and attend. The face of the solid spirit, he was one of those that wore a robe, made me want to dance. It was so jocund, so established in its youthfulness. Well, I'm damned, said the ghost. I wouldn't have believed it. It's a far knockout. It isn't right. Len, you know. What about poor Jack, eh? You look pretty pleased with yourself. But what I say is, what about poor Jack? He's here, said the other. You will meet him soon if you stay. But you murdered him. Of course I did. It's all right now. All right, is it? All right for you, you mean. But what about the poor chap himself laying cold and dead? But he isn't. I've told you, you will meet him soon. You sent, he sent you his love. What I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here for, as pleased as punch you, a bloody murderer. Well, I've been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years. That is a little hard to understand at first, but it is all over now. You will be pleased about it presently. Till then, there is no need to bother about it. No need to bother about it. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? No, not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I've given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder, that was what it, what it did for me. After that was how everything began. And that is how everything began. Personally said the big ghost with an emphasis, which contradicted the ordinary meaning of the world word personally, I'd have thought you and I ought to be the other way around. That's my personal opinion. Very likely we sh- we soon should shall be said the other. if you'll stop thinking about it, Look at me now, said the ghost, slapping his chest, but the slap made no noise. i gone straight all my life. I didn't say I was a religious man. And I don't say I had no faults, far from it. But i done my best all my life. See, i done my best with, by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything. That, was, that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, i done my job. See, that's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. This man is saying, at least, at least I followed the rules. You killed somebody. Why was I in hell and you're in heaven? Because he's intent on saying, look at what I did. Look at how I followed the rules and did my job. I might have not been perfect, but hey, at least I didn't kill someone. Let me read just a little bit other another part. Except that my bookmark fell off. You know what? I will. Um, I'll summarize it for you. The next part is there is a solid person who sees a ghost, and this ghost has been a bishop in the church, and he's had an open mind, and he's concerned with asking all of the right questions. But the solid person says, "You're still looking at yourself and not at Jesus." You're consumed with yourself and not with Jesus. You see, our temptation is to say, even as we come to Jesus, just let me do certain things. Let me be a certain way. Let me, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And when we do that, we just keep our eyes fixed on ourselves and we lose the whole actually true algorithm of finding life, which is you must die first to inherit eternal life. The way up in the kingdom of heaven is the way down. The way to glory is through humiliation. The way to resurrection is through a cross. This is how it works in the kingdom. You must first become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And our temptation is to say, look at how young I am, Look at how well-to-do I am. Look at how my kids obey me. Look at how I get behind the right causes. Look at me. And what Jesus tells us here in this passage, what he's telling you this morning, is whatever you have to do, cut off your right hand, gouge out your eye, give away all of your wealth, do it to enter the kingdom of heaven. To have eyes to see the grace of God in Christ. It will all be worth it. It will be. Die now and live then. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that whatever you need to speak to us as individuals this morning, you would do so. Whatever things we are holding on to, This morning, we would give up, that we might see you. Youth, righteousness. Do-gooder, righteousness. Look at what I've all accomplished, righteousness. Wealthy, righteousness. Poverty, righteousness. Whatever we have to give up, Lord, that we might see you. God speak to us this morning. And I pray that we might hear these words from Jesus that it's all worth it. It's always worth it.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.